The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Hey folks, and welcome to Typology, the show in which we explore the mystery of the human personality through the lens of the Enneagram. My name is Anthony Skinner, producer of the show, and we're really happy to have you here today. We have a fantastic guest. He is uh, someone I met some months ago, and we've been trying to get him on the show, and he is finally here talking about Police Chief Mike Alexander. He is a principal partner of the Lions Strategy Group. He is a leadership and life coach and trainer, and he also sits on the board of the Narrative Enneagram. He is a fascinating individual, uh, just a beautiful human being, and I know you are going to love this show. So without any further ado, let's get to the host of our show, Ian Cron. Mike Alexander, welcome to Typology. Glad to be here. Glad to be here. You are an Enneagram 6. I am. And we love Enneagram 6s. Some of our favorites. It is one of our favorites. We love us some Enneagram 6s. That's a good thing or a bad thing. (laughs) Well, we're going to find out. (laughs) So you have one of the most amazing resumes uh, that I've I've read of uh, one of our guests on the show. And um, what I'd love for you to do is just in brief, if you would... Uh, tell us a little bit about how you came to discover the Enneagram and how, how, yeah, and how you're using it in your life. Okay. Okay. That's a, that's a very good question. Uh, I think it's around 2001, 2002, I believe. Um, uh, we had, an, I, I retired from the Austin police department. We had an onslaught of alcohol related issues happening within the police department where um, one of events were pretty egregious. We lost a high-ranking official, a commander, and her husband. They were doing what we call a poker run, uh, a a very good, uh, worthy fundraiser for a worthy group uh, organization. I don't recall the organization. But they were going from from bar to bar um, and getting either a card or a poker chip and went they then they will go to the next one. And while they were doing what they were doing, they were also consuming alcohol. And so quite a few of them got fairly intoxicated and the commander and her husband lost their lives that day. And so quite a few of them uh, were intoxicated and the chief of police tried to inter- intervene by inquiring what well, what happened and why didn't anyone say anything to her and um, of course they were afraid to do so and i'll talk about that later on about four things that we typically see in organizations that are void of certain things but they were afraid Um, and so he decided to do an investigation and once he did that the police association came after him so he backed out of it a little bit Mm -hmm. and and then i got a phone call from him and he asked me if I had any answers to why these things were occurring. 
Now, the reason he asked me is because I was at the time highly engaged with uh, work with Department of Justice across the country dealing with ethics and integrity issues uh, uh, within police departments that were struggling with those issues. And um, so he asked me if I could help him. And I told him at the time, I said, Chief, I really don't have a, a solid answer for you right now, but if you give me an opportunity, I will give you some answers. So it was at that point, I reached out to a police psychologist of mine by the name of Dr. Rick Bradstreet. And he was a 25 year veteran of the police department as a psychologist. He had retired by that time. So I reached out, he and I met at a Starbucks and uh, we sat there for five hours. Hmm. And we talked about the underbelly of policing. And from that, uh, was the evolution of a curriculum we called Hidden Hazards. And Hidden Hazards were designed to teach supervisors how to pick up on micro issues to mitigate the macro. And during that time, R Rick Bradstreet introduced the Enneagram to that curriculum, but he did not call it the Enneagram. He didn't call it anything. He just introduced the the, the process. And I was highly intrigued by it. And so I began to ask questions. Mm -hmm. And he told me at the time that he thought I was a two. Mm -hmm. uh, and the reason he thought I was a two, I understand now, because I was so willing to help deal with the issues that were happening within the police department. But unbeknownst to him, and perhaps even me, that that my real motivation was fear. I was concerned with the things that were happening and these guys work with me and they make calls with me and I really don't know what I don't know. So I wanted to make sure that everyone was safe. Mm. So um, he asked me a question one day. I can't recall what the question were, but I said something that intrigued him. And at that point, he invited me to a workshop um, and he had me take a, 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 an assessment and once I took the assessment, it came out as a six. He then invited me and put me on a panel with other sixes. And that was the, that's when I went, I, I took a deep dive at that point. Mm -hmm. and, and, and to be quite frank, um, I actually uh, discovered Mike Alexander that day as well, because I didn't know me either. Mm -hmm. Wow. Tell yeah. me more about that. What, what, what do you mean you discovered Mike Alexander? Well, I, you know, there were things about me uh, and why I did the things that I did, um, um, why certain things were conflictual for me, uh, why I was, I, I sometimes, from the perspective of others, when I saw things, I spoke about those things and sometimes they thought I was being negative mm -hmm. when in actuality I saw danger and I tried to be proactive and speak to the issue mm -hmm. before it uh, before it, it happened. And so sometimes how I spoke about it uh, came across to the receiver as negative. Um, and so I just couldn't understand because most of the times when I saw what I saw, it actually came to fruition. Mm. And um, and then I, you know, sometimes I would then say, I told you so. Mm -hmm. And so very sarcastically. And so it wasn't until I recognized that then I could temper myself. 
I can regulate myself. I can speak different. I can change my cadence. I can change my approach. And once I began to do that, then uh, I was included a lot more. I was, they were asking more questions instead of pushing me away. Right. So you're, you're beautifully describing what happens when self-awareness becomes self becomes operational, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. When, yeah. It, when it's, when it, when it's working and you're able to step back from yourself, observe what's going on in the moment and regulate the way that you're acting, thinking and feeling uh, that you might better connect to yourself and to the world around you. Yeah, exactly. Very well said. So you're a counterphobic six, right? Can you well, describe, or, or that's what your bio says, so you tell me. No, I, I think I'm a social six, uh, but, you know, I struggle with counterphobic. Um, well, yes, well, I am a counterphobic six, but I'm a social. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Subtype, but, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I, I am definitely a counterphobic, so I sometimes I come across looking like an eight. Yes, um, right. And so that energy is coming from me, uh, especially when... Uh, I know what I know, and people are resisting what I know. Um, and I just sometimes it's just, I don't even know how to describe it. But uh, that energy is emanating from me, and I'm trying to contain it at the same time. But frustration is also coming up. And um, I just I just become almost a beast sometimes. And is that because, and, and here's what most people say about you know, counterphobic sixes. And by the way, I'm of the mind that actually there's a continuum between phobic and counterphobic mm-hmm. and that all sixes actually, you know, you could say I live more at the, this end of the counterphobic spectrum most of the time or down here toward the phobic end. But I think all sixes live on a spectrum between the two and sometimes because they're ambivalent typically right Mm -hmm. so you know sometimes they become aggressive and attack the source of danger and other you know what i mean not knowing they're afraid they're they're just like going on the attack against what they perceive is the source of you know their whatever the threat and then other times they're more submissive than they are rebellious you know and so it can go like this, you know, in the course of a day, you know. Right, right. Uh, well, what I, what I call that is uh, when I'm teaching and I talk about the six, I always say that the healthy six vacillate between the phobic and counterphobic. They know when the he- the six is healthy, they know what battles to fight and which battles to let go. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yes, we stay on that continuum back and forth, back and forth. So when we come face to face with an issue or a challenge, we make a decision. Is this a battle worth fighting or is this one of those situations mm-hmm. where we need to let it go? If I'm counterphobic all the time, then I fight every battle. If right. I'm phobic all the time, I run from every situation. So mm-hmm. you're absolutely right. We vacillate between that continuum. Right. Thank you. And so do you ever stop and ask yourself when um, you're starting to feel emotions um, that are uncomfortable do you ever stop and ask yourself the question, what am I afraid of right now? Like, what's, what, what's, what's the fear here that's driving uh, any number of other emotions that maybe I'm tempted to act out on? Oh, I, have, I absolutely do now. Um, and I tell you what, that has saved me in so many ways. Mm. Uh, as a police chief, as a city manager, 
uh, you know, you're coming across people who are very confrontational all the time. And sometimes I'm the trigger by decisions that I make. Mm -hmm. So when I, I begin to feel that way, I actually breathe into that energy in my body. Mm. So I can settle myself before I speak. Um, because so if I stay in that kind of phobic, uh, I'm going to match their energy. Mm-hmm. Mm. So I just, because what I'm looking for is a win-win. And, you know, your question actually reminds me of um, Stephen M. R. Covey's book, The Speed of Trust, mm-hmm. where he talks about straight talk versus double talk. And what that does for me it caused me to kind of regulate, bring my energy down and um, breathe in and then I speak. Yes. Uh, what I'm trying to do is in a, in a crucial conversation like that, I'm trying to create a win-win. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, Anthony, this is like, you know, well, I just have to say one thing about this, right? Yeah. Well, yeah. first of all, what we're seeing in real time is someone who's done some work, right? Definitely. Because you've already introduced the whole somatic piece, right? Like in the yes. body, reconnecting, breathing, trying to find the space between reacting and responding. Yes. Exactly. Right? So that you're not in reactivity, but you're, you're kind of stepping back and collecting the self and, and so that you can respond from a good space. Now, the other person may remain in reactivity, but you're not, right? You're, you've sort of detached from the situation and you're able to, to step into it. And that's really good work for a six, but for every type, right? Mm -hmm. Right. Like for example, do you know where in your body, uh, you is the sort of the red flag fear is here. Anxiety is here. Where, where is that for you? For me, it hits me sort of in my rib cage. Mm -hmm. Um, and when it does, I immediately feel it. And, you know, I always equate this when I'm explaining it to others, because I tell everyone, anytime your nervous system is about to be hijacked, there will always be an energy in your body somewhere. Mm-hmm. We have to learn our bodies, just like a mechanic so know an engine. They yes. know it very, very well to where they can hear a little tick. It may yes. be a very obscure tick, and they can stop that car and go and diagnose it right away. The right. body is a, is a machine as well. So I tell them what we need to start doing is slow down and pay attention to the energy in your body. Mm-hmm. And once, excuse me, once it happens, you should be able to go to that energy and sit with it. Mm. And, and you move it to where you want it to move by breathing into it before you speak. And when you do that, uh, that conversation, that situation, actually most of the time will turn out the way you want it to turn out. That's fantastic, isn't it? It is really great. (laughs) I love this. It really is great. It makes me think of, so my son is a six and he, he, you know, he's 19 and he keeps getting in the loop of trying to get rid of the fear. And I'm like, no, you, you just need to identify it because it, yeah. it will serve you well if you can yeah. identify it yes. and, and uh, meet it where, like you're saying now. I was right there with him. I was there when I discovered I was a six. I did everything I possibly could to get rid of being a six. Mm-hmm. I said, this is not right. This is not me. But now I love the idea of being mm. a six. Oh, that's good. What do you love about being a six? I love the idea of worst case scenario first. 
That's awesome. I rarely hear a six say it's a, that. It's okay, a, but tell me why that's a superpower. Well, because it prepares me. Now, I probably lose a lot of sleep. I probably worry about things that may never come to fruition. But, man, am I prepared when that thing, and if it does come to fruition, I am solid. Yeah. I am grounded. I am calm. Uh, but that is why I love it. I, I, and I'm, I'm very good at picking up on micro issues. And I have a great bullshit detector. Yeah. No, no, that's so fine. good. So, but, yeah. And, and by the way, sixes do have a great bullshit detector. Yeah. Right. Yeah, that's and right. In, in fact, you know, I, I, when I work with sixes, like when I lead workshops or, or, or things like that, you know, I always laugh. I say the sixes always have their arms folded and their legs crossed in the first 30 minutes. You know, they're right. just like, like this and because I'm the authority figure. Right. Right. And the authority figure, they're kind of ambivalent about it. They're like kind of looking at me and they're like, okay, is this a guy going to try and pull the wool over my eyes? Is he, is he going to be, you know, is he straight up? Is he a double talker or a straight talker? You know, oh, and yeah. then once you've established that you're trustworthy, mm-hmm. right. You just start to see their body relax, Mm -hmm. you know, and they just kind of melt a little bit. And within about two hours, they're taking notes and laughing and having a good time. But at the beginning, you can see the suspicion in their body. Yes. Right. Uh, Well, that's the very reason I use my road trip of eight hours to listen to podcasts so I can prepare myself for your cadence. And so mm -hmm. I can relax and that Mm -hmm. my anxiety would not be off the charts because if, if it, I, I always know, I, number one, I don't really like doing these kinds of things. Um, but and because if I can't control my my nervous system, uh, my anxiety, uh, I'm all over the board. I am mm. just spastic. Mm. And I hate when that happens to me. Mm. I love this because like, it, it, it encourages me. I can't wait for my son to listen to this podcast to even watch you because... It's like you are a powerful presence and you're such a gift to mm. our community, but you still are struggling with those fears, right? Oh, it's like you're not eliminating that. So I just can't wait for Justice to to, to see this. This is great. Yeah, you know, I, Mike, I have a, uh, I've, I've had an interest for many years in Tibetan Buddhism. And, and one of the things that's been so helpful is learning to sit with what is, right? So yeah. if, you know, instead of saying I'm anxious, you know, we would say something like anxiety is here yeah, yeah. or fear is here or happiness is here. And you know what I mean? In other words, not oh, yeah. to get over identified with it, but to see like, OK, this is an impermanent feeling. It right. is going to come in and, and right it on. will go away. That's right. That's, That's right. right. So I, I call that name it. When you name it, you can claim it. Yeah. Once I claim it, I own it. But if mm-hmm. I can't name it, it owns me. Mm-hmm. So once I feel it, once it comes in, I name it. And when I name it, I, at that point, I claim it and I now am in control versus it being in control. All right. So we all know that anytime we see a stereotype on television, right, Anthony, mm-hmm. that, you know, you have to take it with a grain of salt, right? Mm-hmm. And, you know, so you watch police shows, right, or mm-hmm. detective shows, and there is a stereotype of policemen, right? Correct. Mike is not that. Right. You know what I'm saying? Like, right. like Mike is actually speaking in some very, what I would call, high-level spiritual terms, right? Because there is a spirituality to the Enneagram. And I know that in my work in corporate world, I can't talk too 
deeply about spirituality without the CEO getting a little squirrely because, you know, that's not appropriate in a corporate setting. But I want to know, Mike, for you, how what's the spiritual dimension of the Enneagram like? Like, what's that about for you? Now, psychology, that's one piece, but what's the spirituality side? Well, um, if I'm understanding the question, um, you know, I'm, I'm absolutely God-fearing. And um, I see the parallel between the two. I, I see the parallel between God's word and the Enneagram. Um, and, you know, the whole emotional intelligence piece, mm-hmm. that's, that's biblical. And um, it, it, it teaches me how, in spite of the person that I'm dealing with, to always treat them with dignity and respect. Mm-hmm. Uh, it helps me to have compassion for people when they are struggling. Mm-hmm. Uh, it helps me to recognize that I may be the trigger of something that happened to them 15 years ago. Yes, awesome. Mm-hmm. That is awesome. Wow. My therapist said to me the other day, you know, I just happened to mention that I'd had an interaction with somebody that was unpleasant. And he goes, yeah, maybe you reminded him of his mother. <laughs> you know? And I was like, oh, yeah, I guess that's possible. Right. You know, it wasn't yeah. personal. It was historical. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And uh, we, we just never know what, what is being triggered in, in other people. Yeah. All right, Mike, so I have a question for you. Um, police officers. Mm-hmm. What types do you tend to see more often than any other among police forces? I see a lot of ones. Yeah. A lot of twos. Mm. I see a lot of threes. I see fives. Not a lot of them, but I see fives. I see quite a few sixes. I see a ton of eights and nines. Yeah. I don't see a lot of are fours and sevens. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, I, 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 you know, I was in. I was in Little Rock. I was actually dealing with educators, but it, mostly most settings, I, that's the case. But especially in policing, I will occasionally have a five or four. I seldom have fours. And I always yeah. say when that comes up, I say, I know I have them because I had a four working on a team that I led uh, when, in my first chief job. Uh, man, what a, what a, um, what a unique guy um, who I always, and he's a young man and I they fours for me have old souls. And I just love talking to fours. I have a son that's a four mm-hmm. and um, he's a coach. And man, the guy is just awesome. I love talking with him. You know, there are times when I'm thinking I'm going to counsel him and it's the opposite. Mm-hmm. He ended up counseling me and I'm saying, wow. But yeah. Uh, yeah, so ones, twos, threes, um, an occasional five, but quite a few sixes, uh, occasional seven, um, and but eights and nines. But the four and the seven are the two that I seldom see. A lot. Yeah, and I can see that. You know, partly because um, police departments. And please correct me if I'm wrong. If I start to lapse into stereotypes, right? Mm-hmm. Um, sevens don't like bureaucracies. Um, they don't like repetition. That's right. They they like spontaneity. That's exactly. Right. Uh, they don't like necessarily the predictability 
that yes, might come, you know, along with that. Fours, I totally get it. You know, I, you know, it's interesting in the corporate world, I rarely meet fours, at least in the corporations I've worked with, mm -hmm. right? If I meet them, they're somebody like they're the web designer or yeah. they're, you know, doing very creative, you know, right. marketing work or something right. like that. Right. But they're, but they don't gravitate toward positions um, that, you know, we would, you know, probably suspect they wouldn't, you know, it's, it's right. pretty, it's, it's uncommon. I meet a lot of fours who work for themselves, you yeah. know, yeah. uh, artists, musicians, not, you know, uh, you know, folks in, in sort of creative spaces, they could be floral arrangers, they could be yoga teachers, they could be, right. you know, whatever, but they're usually doing something also very heart-ish, you know? Right. Um, he's a, he's a, he's a coach, but he's a musician. Right. And an artist. Uh, yeah. Is his coaching stuff. supporting the art? Do what now? Does it support the art? Is that is that why he's coaching? Because it, it yes it's, yes exactly yeah. right. That's pretty mm -hmm. common, I yeah. think, among mm -hmm. fours. They'll mm -hmm. they'll do another day job, but it's really to support the art. Yeah, it's exactly right. right the yeah. creative endeavor. Now, <sighs> this guy that was working for you that was a four. I'm just curious about this, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Um, and um, was he just a, a regular police officer working on the street? You know, like. But what was his? Yes, that's yeah. He was a he was a patrol sergeant, and he so, was a sergeant. So he had done well, right? In right. in his career, but at the, by that time, I I introduced him to the Enneagram. Um, right. So when I entered, the first thing I do is all of my leadership. I I give them. It's an online assessment, so I right. can get an idea. Uh -huh. of who they are and and when i discovered he was a four i began to work with him so he embraced it but um yeah he was a he was a patrolman uh but i struggled with him because of his uh, uh there are moments when he was highly depressed and then there are moments when he's on the mountaintop and right. trying to find that balance with him mm -hmm. was a struggle for me mm -hmm. gosh i'd love to know that guy's story <laughs> I'd love to know how a four ended up as a policeman because it just is not what you think, right? No, it no, just no. doesn't seem like their world. Now, you're on the board of Helen Palmer School, right? The Enneagram and the Narrative Tradition. I have done a ton of studying. I, I don't know if you're aware of that with, uh, you know, I know Peter and uh, well, uh, the, everybody else that's on board. And you have a new CEO or president, right, who I've right. met. Who's Brian. Brian, right? Um, Brian, and and so this is you know you've studied, man. Like you know this thing, right? It's not like you're not a dabbler, right? right. You you you've really done some deep work. Right. When when you're doing work uh, in in police or in other settings, right? Mm -hmm. How do people first respond to it? Well. You know, I don't go in introducing it as the Enneagram. Uh, if I'm dealing with police officers, I call it DNA. Oh. Uh, this is your DNA. And, right. Uh, That's good. Because at that point, they can resonate with that word and they embrace it. Uh, yeah. But once I open it and unpack it, they are all in it. Yeah, and then you can tell them it's the Enneagram. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah, and that's exactly when I do. And, and, uh, and at that it, point, they introduce it to their spouses. Yes. Um, and, yeah, because they become very curious about yeah. it. So you're working in M Minneapolis, right? You're doing so well. Tell I, us what you're I, doing. I, in, I'm or making an, yeah, I'm making an attempt to get into Minneapolis. I met with 
every police chief in the state of Minnesota to discuss some of the work I do around what we're talking about now and the workforce behavior intervention platform. Um, here's what I, I think happened. I'm speculating, but I think I scared the living daylights out of them to be quite mm. frank. Wow. Um, because it's, it's a leadership tool uh, and it will definitely cause leaders to hold one another accountable. And right now we can, um, we can easily say I was unaware, but that's absolutely not true either. When you look at the whole uh, George Floyd, uh, Derek Chauvin situation, and you look at the history of Derek Chauvin, they knew this guy had the propensity to do what he did. Mm. When it happened, they, they were all saying they were not surprised. So, uh, my system is designed to pick up on those micro issues before it get to the point where we have to say I'm not surprised. Mm -hmm. It causes leaders to be engaged right away when they pick up on negative energy in the bodies of their employees. And so I carefully designed the system uh, to where when that leader is engaged with that employee, they can see what they see. And it's, and it's not subjective is based off of the seven empirical emotions that the Enneagram also speaks to. Mm. And when, when you look at levels of development and particularly around level five of each of the nine levels, that is the stage there where the nervous system is under attack and oftentimes is about to be hijacked. And so at that point, that's still micro issue. And so I teach leaders this is where you need to be laser focused. And when you see something, you need to inquire, but you need to do a whole lot of work before that time because it's still somewhat your perception, but I need you to even inquire about your perception, but you can't do it until you do your work in developing a, a relationship with your employee. Because if you go to them with things that you see and that person is not violating the policy, then the possibility exists they're gonna they're gonna reject you, may even file a grievance against you. But so you have to do the work first of developing a relationship so you can talk about very sensitive issues under under normal circumstances. You can't do that with a person that you casually hang out with. Mm -hmm. But as a leader, you need to truly, truly, truly be engaged with your employees. Uh, a great book that indicates that or illustrate that is written by um, Dr. Kevin Lehman. And the title of the, this is a religious book, and it's entitled The Way of the Shepherd. Hmm. And he gives you seven principles of leadership. And so I teach leaders that if you follow these seven principles, you will be highly engaged with your employees so that when that time comes, and it is inevitable, it is going to happen where you need to have a crucial conversation with that employee. And I, I teach them about the ingredients of a crucial conversation. When you have opposing opinions, strong emotions, and stakes are high. And so when those three things are present, the employee will shy away from having that crucial conversation, or the leader may shy away. Mm -hmm. Well, I tell the leader, you need to have the courage to engage. But you have to do your front end programming first. If you don't front end program that officer, 
you're not going to be able to engage them in intimate, detailed conversations about their personal stuff and their personal lives. Hmm. So, Mike, I mean, this is a, well, it's kind of an Enneagram question, but again, I'm, I'm asking questions out of ignorance, but why is it that Derek Chauvin or, or other officers who, you know, we've heard, you know, we've just had so many stories about them, right? Right. Why is it, what is it in the bureaucracy or the organizational system that allows for these kinds of folks to stick around, you know what I mean? Or, or not get help. I mean, like you were saying they're afraid and I'm like, well, gosh, it doesn't sound, I don't want, I don't think about policemen about being afraid. Is it, is it uh, a case of, you know, being loyal beyond what, what is, should be acceptable. I mean, like what, what's happening? Do you think? No, no, I think it's, um, well, usually when you see situations like Derek Chauvin, there are four things missing from the organization. Okay. Leadership engagement, psychological safety, mental and emotional wellness, and the work environment is toxic. Hmm. So, um, in, in my description of a police officer at work is this. We are normal people, abnormal circumstances, behaving abnormally, and that's normal. Mm-hmm. So if you think about that, uh, we are often, we find ourselves um, as normal people dealing with a ton of abnormal situations. And because we are constantly dealing with those abnormalities, we begin to behave in very abnormal ways and that becomes the norm. Mm. So when Derek Chauvin is doing Derek Chauvin, everybody is accustomed to it. Mm. So we say nothing because we don't know what to say because it's very difficult to articulate. So we say absolutely nothing and we just typically wait until he fall off the wagon or he does something very egregious. And we talk about him for a little while and the only reason we talk about him for the, a little while is because another cop is about to peak that same heel. Mm. See, there's so many things that are happening behind the scenes that the average person have no idea what happens in police departments. Mm. For example, a police officer is 300% more likely to suffer from alcoholism than general population. Mm-hmm. Wow. See, so every 32 to 54 hours somewhere in the United States, there's a police officer committing suicide. Hmm. There are 900,000 law enforcement, law enforcement officers nationally, 18,500 agencies. And you have a ton of police officers that I categorize as walking wounded. Hmm. You see, so we are so accustomed to these things and we don't know what to do to address them. So what, what do we do? We, we create policy. We create legislation to try to control the nervous system Mm -hmm. when all we really need to do is engage those employees. The science of the research says, and I think I mentioned this already, an engaged employee with their supervisor will outperform the average by 202%. You see, so if I'm engaged with that employee, I will see those things. I could say something about those things and I can mitigate them before they become a major issue. It's never a surprise when a cop go off the, off the rail. In Puerto Rico, we call ourselves Boricua. 
We are proud, passionate, and full of life. On our island, adventure finds you. Strangers aren't strangers for long. The size of the audience doesn't change the beauty of the music. And we celebrate every last ray of sun. Live Boricua. It's never a surprise. Mm. Wow. Mm. All right, more. Okay, so now another conversation just above that. Okay, and maybe this ends the, enters the warm world of the spiritual, you know, because it's a, it's a, a large question. But, you know, we, we're in the middle of this in terribly important conversation around race in America. Right. And one of the things I've wondered to myself is, how can the Enneagram inform that conversation like is there anything that any is there wisdom to be found in the enneagram that would make a helpful contribution to that conversation absolutely my system does that very thing as well we're, all right tell me about that we're we're still we're still dealing with behavior right so um if a police department has core values and guiding principles they're polar opposite of a, a, a of a racist police officer, polar opposite, right? So if we are following those core values, guiding principles, and a police officer says something that's racist or do something that's questionable, uh, that system will pick that up hmm. and it will name it. Hmm. Uh, and then it would also give strategies of how to address what you just observed. Hmm. See, the beauty of neurobehavior science is a wonderful tool. Why? Because it's proven. And all I did was create a language around neurobehavior science hmm. that could help me decipher what I see and what I what I know to be true. It gives me a direction. It gives me a a uh, a platform, a system, a strategy of addressing the issue uh, that I just discovered hmm. in that office. So, Mike, in in your relationship with your wife, mm-hmm. um, what what do you, what do you know her type? Yeah, she's a one, and she's also um, uh, she used her. She's a therapist. Oh wow! And she used the enneagram in her um, in her sessions. Wow! Uh, yes, yes, and she's a she's a uh, she's probably three or four months away from PhD in marriage and family therapy. Oh, that's mm. awesome. So, question, how has it affected your marriage? Well, wow, that's a great question. Um, so, I'm going to get pretty transparent here. Um, Please. Probably about 15 years of our marriage was, was, was horrible. Uh, and it wasn't until we were introduced to the Enneagram. Mm. And I'll never forget the panel I sat on for the first time. My wife was in the audience. Mm. And as Dr. Bradstreet were asking questions, uh, she lit up like a, a Christmas tree. Mm. For the first time, she understood me. Wow. Um, yes. And it was, you're talking about a phenomenal conversation on our way home in our, in our car. Wow. Um, yes, it was phenomenal. And it, it really, it saved our marriage and it saved my life. Mm. Because here, here's the here's the deal, guys. When I was at my best, I was at my worst. 
Hmm. What does that mean? Well, I was I was a high performer. I was high producing cop. But there was a there was a time in my career where I was off the chain. Uh, I had like four uh, crashes within a six month span hmm. uh, because I was not spiritually grounded. I did not know Mike Alexander. I was being triggered by the calls and the images of dead bodies hmm. and babies and suicides. Hmm. And I did not know how to interpret what was going on with me. Hmm. So what I what happens is police officers, we will gravitate towards dysfunctional things to cope. Mm-hmm. So what be it alcohol, be it um, work, I did both of those. I buried myself in work and I became very good at my craft. Mm. Yeah, well, but, you sixes are doers, man. Yeah, yeah. You're doers. Okay, so you got good at your craft. Yeah, I got very good and I, I began to drink. Um, and my wife don't drink. But I tell you, uh, she's such a brilliant woman in that um, uh, Wow. I would come home and uh, drink and she would uh, she would just create a space for me um, um, and just make sure I'm okay. And I'll never forget um, when I was really in a bad place and my kids uh, and her was at the dinner table. She tells me this story. And my, my oldest daughter said, I hate that, I hate that. And uh, my wife said, uh, no, you can't hate your dad. Your dad is sick right now. And what you need to do more than anything else is pray for him. And let's pray that God would take care of him while he takes this journey. Mm. And, uh, yeah. So my mission now, um, guys, is uh, I see cops. I see what they're struggling with. Divorce rate in our profession is so high. It's off the charts. And so many cops are just spiraling out of control and they have no idea. And then the leaders in these organizations have no idea what to do to help them. Mm. So that was my motivation for creating the tool in which I created to try to interface with these organizations to save lives. So I created a platform called Clearing the Pathway for Healing and Policing in America. Mm. Because we can't not as a We need police. There's no way on God's green earth that we could do what we do without having police officers. But we need good, morally sound, ethical cops who are willing to do the right thing. But they don't know themselves. And so we need leaders to be informed so that they can help these cops. And I always equate this to the nervous system, you know, the autonomic nervous system. When that, when that sympathetic nervous system is hijacked and it activates the fight, 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 flight, or freeze response, 
the supervisor is supposed to become the parasympathetic nervous system mm. so that he can help or she can help regulate that cop and bring him down. Mm. Peter Levine wrote a book called The uh, Unspoken Voice, where he talks about people getting stuck in hyper arousal or hypo arousal. Mm-hmm. So many cops getting stuck in either of those categories. Well, but he also talks about a resilient zone where throughout that day of eight to 10 hours, 12 hours, whatever we work, there are constant charges and then there's a release. There's another charge and then there's a release. The supervisor is responsible for keeping that police officer in a certain zone. And I call that the resilient zone. And if the supervisor is uninformed and unaware, he's going to lose a cop. He's going to lose a very good cop. And we're constantly losing them. Yeah. So, I didn't mean to get emotional, but. but oh, no, that's okay. Oh, this is typology, you. man. <laughs> we do emotions here. It's okay. Mm. You got two fours listening. We're perfectly yeah. fine, man. We, you want to go there. We know how to go with you and be perfectly comfortable with it. So no, no problems. Well, Mike, I, this conversation has been extraordinary. So good. Really extraordinary. Yeah. And, and I'm, I'm leaving this conversation just feeling such a tremendous amount of admiration for you and for Mm -hmm. your work for your commitment uh for your um your desire to help create environments in which people can bring their whole person to work uh where they can learn to discover who they are to capitalize on the great gifts they bring to the table Mm -hmm. and also to become self-aware enough to know in the moment when the those aspects of their type those unskillful unhelpful aspects of their person are taking over you know and what a what a great mission man Mm. and and uh, it just encourages me and it's wonderful to know in an age when you know um there's a lot of bad press about the police, right? That to have you on, I think, is a, a great gift to all of our listeners, uh, and I hope a great encouragement to them mm-hmm. that there are, you know, men and women like you out there who are doing the good work, you know, mm-hmm. and using the Enneagram, man, to yeah. to do it. Yes, yes. It's, it, it, like I said, it saved my life. It saved mm-hmm. my marriage. It, saved, it just saved me as a as a as a human being and i am mm. grateful yeah well we're grateful for you and for all that you do and we're going to have you back on man yeah for sure tell us how people can learn more about what you're doing and uh social handles and all that kind of stuff well um i am not technology savvy so uh i have um uh adrian uh sanders k that really helped me with all of that stuff so She's created all of those social handles of Instagram and Twitter. And right. I have a LinkedIn page, so you can definitely find me on LinkedIn. Yes. Uh, you can find me. Uh, I have a website uh, called Lion, L-I-O-N, Strategy Group. And you can find all of our offerings there. Mm-hmm. Pretty much everything that we do, you will find contained within the Lion Strategy Group website. Um, right. I partnered with another chief who happens to be a Enneagram 5. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
and uh, we also have an attorney on our team. So the three of us are out to do revolutionary mm-hmm. things for mm-hmm. uh, this country we call the U.S. of A. Mm-hmm. Mm. So that's lionstrategy.group. Yeah. You can learn more about uh, what Mike's doing there. And then on uh, on Instagram, it's lion underscore strategy group. So everybody go follow. Yeah. Yeah. Go check that out. Mike, peace and grace to you. And uh, we hope to have you back on again. Typology Tribe, remember these words. May you have love. May you have joy. May you have peace. May you have healing. May you have rest. Until next time. Thank you, guys.